I'm Mark. And I'm Rob. And welcome to 42 to Doomsday. And congratulations to new showrunner Chris Chibnall, who after hearing our last podcast, had this to say. It doesn't seem to have much to it. It could have been a lot better. Congratulations to Chris. And gee, those words aren't going to come back and bite you on the bottom, are they? As usual, we're late to the party. On the day we released our last podcast, the news that Stephen Moffat was stepping down as showrunner was announced. We did discuss if we should do a quickie cast to chat about the news, but we wanted the enormity of the situation to sink in and needed time to gather our thoughts and respond to the news in the serious and dignified tone that our listeners demand and expect from us. Rob, can you hear that sound? What sound's that, Mark? I can hear a nuclear warhead being uh, primed and aimed at Melbourne from a rocket silo in Exeter. Deep in the heartlands of Exeter, no doubt. Yes, we're joking, people. We're joking. Before we get our thoughts on the on the, the Moffat departure, we had this letter. Dear Robin Mark, I felt the news released last Australia Day weekend merited a letter to your show. Firstly, on Stephen Moffat and his legacy. Right at the top, I can't get past the fact that on his watch during season six, I did dislike the show enough to give up and stop watching. And Death in Heaven got close to making me do that again. However, on the positive, he did get me back as a viewer with a very strong 50th anniversary. And he has me enjoying Doctor Who again with Peter Capaldi and a number of fun stories and gems across the era. Listen and Heaven Sent will be good examples of those episodes. I don't know if this makes me a Moffat hater or not, but even if it does, I'm too old now to really care about fandom labels. But we now have a date for Moffat's departure, so a couple of general thoughts. Firstly, am I correct in saying that we don't really have a reason for the total lack of Who in 2016? Apart from a Christmas ep, this will make it the longest Who-free period since Rose. I don't believe the explanation given. How many of the show's casual viewers really know or care who the showrunner is? Secondly, if you're going to have an effective 16-month break in the show, you're signalling, effectively, a relaunch in 2017. Why relaunch with the same Doctor and the sh- same showrunner? I would have thought you'd do it with new people and have an actual refreshing of the show. Hello, Trial of a Time Lord. Now note, I don't want to see Capaldi go. I'd rather he did a third season, and then we have a break, and then we have a relaunch with a new Doctor and a new showrunner. But if you think the show is travelling well and doesn't need a relaunch, why have a 16-month break at all? I look forward to hearing your discussion on the topic. Regards, David. All right, let's start with the uh, the press release. It's like a Seinfeld episode, wasn't it? Just bubbles of nothing. Well, the reason for the gap year, effectively, is that the BBC want to give Moffat the send-off that he deserves. This is my point that I've risen, uh, made again and again. The show's not about Stephen Moffat. It's about... Uh, the, it's really about the lead, lead actor. The lead actor should always be at the forefront of discussions about the show. And someone who is effectively hired to write for it 
isn't isn't the front man isn't the showman this is going back to you know the the 80s with jnt appearing at, at conventions and and uh, and television as well emerging from the shadows i mean it's you know you sweep aside the curtain and there's there's jnt operating the levers and and davison and baker and mccoy are sort of uh off to one side it's i mean it, it's just pure you know pr spin and marketing crap mm. uh there there are other re- there, there has to be you know a real reason as to why the bbc have elected to push the show uh, off into into 2017 uh is it money is it i mean that, that they're talking about you know the the i think it's uh, the olympics this year in uh, in uh, brazil and also a, a football tournament in in in, in, in uh, europe as a reason for pushing the show back and giving Moffat his farewell, but that's just you know, come on, that's just that's 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 just rubbish. Just gaff, wasn't it? Just spin. I listened to a podcast yesterday about the decline of sport, the rise of you know commercialism in sport, and the way that viewers are being viewers. You know, people attendees of these sports, football and cricket and and rugby, are being alienated by the fact that um, the people running the organisations, you know, are there to spin a dollar make a dollar marketeering and and commercialism to the extent that you know people are being alienated from it and and this this spin this talk is is something similar where we're all being treated as mugs uh by an organization that is more interested in uh presenting itself in a certain way and isn't really interested in the final product that comes out onto the television they want to sell it they want to spin it they want to market it they want to commercialize it and it's not necessarily uh the tv viewing experience that is uppermost in their minds if you think about it if the bbc thought the show was in trouble they would have said right moffat get your last year done now in 2016 get it over get it done you and capaldi would go at the end have a break get chibnall up to speed and then relaunch in 2018 that would make more sense to me as dave points out you know we're having a break for a year almost a christmas special then moffat's last run and then he goes have they confirmed that 2000 and is it 2018 at chris chibnall's debut well so say for instance they come back for a christmas special uh this year and then uh next year 2017 is is moffat's last year it's hard to see that Capaldi would stay on. So if that's the case, he exits in a blaze of glory Christmas 2017, clearing the decks for Chibnall's you know, series uh, to be screened in 2018 with him as, as the front man and uh, a new lead actor as the Doctor. New young actor to be the Doctor. Dishy Doctor. Yeah, they'll go back to someone who's probably in his late 30s, early 40s, I think. I don't, don't know that they would... They might, but I don't... Unless they can... If they find someone young who's young enough and, and, and is good enough an actor, mm. they might go young again. But I, I, I think Chibnall might angle... This is based purely on nothing, of course. Might angle for something late 30s, early 40s. I mean, we all remember Tom Baker was cast as a 40-year-old. Uh, Colin Baker was late 30s. Uh, McCoy was late 30s, early 40s. So that's the sort of median uh, age range that we have uh, with Doctor Who. In terms of the break... It's not like it was in '86. Uh, I mean, we weren't too bad over in Australia because we had Doctor Who constantly repeated, but in the UK they had absolutely nothing. So, uh, in terms of the break, am I upset about it? I'll be honest with you, I'm actually not because there's so much other television I can catch up with and watch, and probably enjoy slightly more to keep me going. So I'm not overly fussed about uh, Doctor Who not being on the air 
and that probably just reflects my current state with the with the series. And look, you know, everybody goes, oh, you guys are anti-Moffat, but I don't think we are, because if we were podcasting during uh, Russell's time, I think we would have praised and sledged him equally as well. I wouldn't be true to myself, and I think you're the same. If if we just sat here and gave endless praise when we, you know, when we didn't think that they, you know, someone deserved it. It's ridiculous. It's just as simple as that. I mean, we, you know, with we would have picked up the flaws and positives of of any showrunner's era. Correct. Do you think? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say what approach, even though I just spent half a minute talking about it it's hard to say what approach Chibnall will take uh, isn't it I mean yeah I mean you could probably only look at his 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 uh, his TV work I mean Broadchurch was a sort of a breakout popular thing that got everyone talking had the tabloids up in arms and with interest and and was a rating success and you know it was it, it, it translated to the US less successfully with Grace Point it did well enough in the UK to justify a second series and a third and a yeah. third which i think is going into production this year so that i mean look that may explain in a, in a little bit why the transition isn't more immediate but mm. uh, do you think that um, moffat now with the sort of you know he's, he can see the light at the end of the tunnel will take a different approach to how he um how he constructs his his final year or do you think it'll be more of the same that i think he'll stay the course yeah yeah i think he'll just go out in a blaze of glory according to what he thinks a blaze so, of uh, timey wimey glory no doubt yeah timey wimey glory and i'm not going to spend four hours speculating on what chibnall might do but uh it's been it's been mentioned he might go back to the rtd populist approach probably uh less convoluted arcs probably um, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. I mean, look, Doctor Who does need renewal. I think three three years is the optimum length for a showrunner. Is it the optimum length for a Doctor? No, I think Capaldi could do another year. With, it'd be interesting to see Capaldi doing a year with Chibnall, then go. Mm-hmm. Uh, same would have been interesting with Tennant doing a year with Moffat mm. and then go. There's a precedent for that because Tom Baker effectively had three eras under three different producers. Mm. Um, and... I think that's it. That allows you to experiment in a sense, um, and, and it's almost a, it would almost be a refresh for Capaldi as well. Yeah, uh, and, and and for the viewers too. You got to remember when the classic series was on. For the most part, the producer and the script editor worked together. Mm. They they bounced each other out in terms of ideas and bad ideas and good ideas, and that did fall apart slightly with Sayward and J and T. Mm. But you know J and T and Carmel. You know, towards the end of the run worked particularly well. So I don't think Moffat or RTD had that strong counterpoint to say, I don't think that could work. This could potentially work. You know, am I sad to see Moffat go? No, I'm not. Because I think for his own career, go out when, you know, he's seen to be riding on a high and he's got bigger fish to fry and he'll do equally well uh, in whatever he does, whether it be film or back to Sherlock or do something completely different. Look, he has done some great things during his tenure. He's cast two great doctors. There's been some great stories that he's written. Um, you know, The Eleventh Hour, I think, is one of the best debut episodes of a doctor uh, since Spearhead. Uh, Listen, Hellbent, series five and eight are probably amongst my favorites of the new series, apart from Death and Heaven. On the rare occasions, I actually say, you know, I'm gonna sit down and watch a new Who. I'll invariably go back to stories in his era, um, you know, like Doctor's Wife or Hyde. But he has written some, in my opinion, some clunkers. Let's Kill Hitler. Uh, death in heaven <laughs> uh, I think his arcs are overly complicated 
and don't pay off. But then again, I don't, I don't think Doctor Who is designed for arc storytelling. It hasn't worked for most part. Key to Time, Trial, um, maybe Russell's first one, the Saxon one, but the rest haven't worked in my opinion. So should Doctor Who return to more of an anthology approach where where it's just it's it's more disconnected stories that don't have an impact you know through throughout the series because i think um i think especially in series nine the the arc the arc the storyline that was imposed on it just didn't work for me and and then it it had a really weak resolution uh, in the last episode that's been the case though for the last two or three years right so like you know the east space trilogy had a subtle arc let's get out of east space and have some adventures along the way yeah, that's right. It didn't interrupt. It didn't disrupt. You didn't have to. It just needs to be just wound back a bit, I think. And that's, mm. I think, what the BBC will probably will ask for. Do we know the whole showrunner position? Is that... I mean, that's obviously an import from, from the US. Is that something yeah. that RTD sort of came up with and, and, and has now been picked up by Moffat? Or is it something, is it something that the BBC was, uh, was keen to experiment with? I honestly have no idea. Does being human on... Before who? I think it was on after. After who? Okay, so maybe RTD set the precedent. I don't know. I don't know enough about the British uh, televisual uh, landscape to, to make a comment on that. I mean, obviously, US is they do it all the time. Well, I mean, it, it appears that I mean, you, you have you know creators like say Chris Carter or, or Vince Gilligan or you know writers like that who who mm. come up with the concept and then they have a team of of writers backing them up and. The, the difference I think I've felt with Doctor Who is that the showrunner has taken on almost the whole burden uh, of writing and has had a team of writers behind them who aren't necessarily, or who, who I've felt often are, are weak. And that, you know, people like Moffat, who must, be, who must be stretched impossibly, you know, wide in terms of, all right, I'm going on a world tour. I'm writing, uh, you know, the main storyline for the series. I'm writing my own episodes, opening and closing, and one in the middle. I have to edit everyone else's so that it conforms with my vision. I have to attend numerous meetings. I have to work on Sherlock. And sit in on edits as well. Exactly. When you're in gainful employment and you're at the top of your game, I don't, you know, I I doubt very much that Moffat's complaining overly. Mm. But from the outside, it looked like it's an exhausting thing. And I just, I think that that's affected him. Uh, at certain points uh, in terms of his, his writing and his conception of what Doctor Who is. and uh, I, I don't know whether sort of him turning the show's gaze inward in terms of... I mean, uh, well, in t- turning the show's gaze inward was a, a safety mechanism for him to make it just easier, that we, it could reflect on itself, it could reflect on the past, it could reflect on the past of Moffat's own era as a way of you know husbanding him through the whole process without having to sort of stretch himself to the uh, creatively to the point where he'd break and his incessant desire to rewrite doctor who continuity more than one line <laughs> look um i suppose we should we should probably leave it there in terms of assessing his legacy because you know he hasn't even finished as yet and no. it'd be interesting to see whether with the you know with the floodgates open in terms of him having a last series what he does uh, and I suppose we can come back in, in 18 months' time and assess uh, whether he goes down bravely with the ship or, or just aims it, <laughs> aims it for the waterfall and just sees what happens. Exactly. So well done, Stephen. Uh, congratulations to Chris. And look forward to what's being served up. Rob, 
I think it was either you or Dave Kitchen set this round earlier during the week, and it uh, had me hyperventilating at work uh, while reading this over my morning coffee. Did it whet your appetite, Mark? No, it didn't. But speaking of appetite, here we go. This is more PR guff. Uh, this is the latest entry into the Doctor Who Merchandising Hall of Fame, or TAT Hall of Fame as I call it. Hall of Shame? BBC Books is publishing Doctor Who, the official cookbook, in August. The fun, family-orientated cookbook is packed full of simple, achievable recipes that are both savoury and sweet, ranging from gingerbread doctors to a pandorica to a Dalek cake. I don't know who actually is putting that book together, but I assume it's being ghostwritten by Gary Downey. <laughs> Literally ghostwritten. Oh, uh, Jesus Christ. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we were asked, Rob, which is very unlikely, uh, what Doctor Who themed recipes would you contribute to it? I would probably plump for uh, uh, giant maggot dim sims. Oh, very nice. You could, uh, of the actual size. So, it, you know, one maggot feeds an entire family. Fried or steamed? Oh, only steamed, I think, steamed. You'd have to go fried to get the, uh, what was the shell? The sh- shitten? Chitinous? Chitinous. To get the chitinous shell, you need to get it uh, fried. Just that, that crunch, that texture. That, that, all, the, all the cooking shows, MasterChef, etc., talk about texture in the mouth. So you just want that crunch. They do. I came up with a couple. Do you want to hear them? Please. Uh, Missy Surprise, which is five kilos of ham just piled on a plate. <laughs> a Moffat layer cake, which is basically throw the ingredients in the bowl. You mix it round. The cooking time is supposed to be for 40 minutes. Just put it on for 20, so it's half-baked. <laughs> just like a story arcs. And uh, baked Davros, so when you pull him out of the oven, his eyes are still open and staring at you. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. If our listeners have any recipes they think should be uh, in the Doctor Who cookbook, send them through. You going to have Missy's surprise for lunch today, Rob? Uh, yes, I think I will. I think I will. Smoked? Smoked or uh, well, a bit of virgin ham, perhaps. A bit of Virginia yeah. ham. Yeah. Cut thin. Pure ham. ham. Pure ham. Pure ham. It's, uh, it's the 80s again, Mark, with the cookbook. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God. We, look, we just come full circle, literally. It just goes around, doesn't it? It's, uh, you know, Star Wars is back. The X-Files is back. The Doctor Who official cookbook is back. It's uh, Everything is uh, coming up 1980s, 1990s again. Did, yeah. uh, did you ever buy the uh, original official cookbook? I did not buy it. I remember seeing loads of copies of it at uh, Minotaur when it came out, along with a pattern book. And they just did not sell, throwing them out for like a dollar or two at the end of it. Because um, some website had a PDF of it, and I thought, uh, they had the PDF of the cookbook and the, the, the patent book. And the patent book, I've used a couple of images up on our blog ages ago. Nice. And the cookbook, I thought, I'll have a quick look at it and see if it's, if it's as bad as I remembered. And it was. There's some really <laughs> awful sounding recipes in there, like no comment nectar and all sort of stuff. I mean, Jesus Christ. No wonder half these people had short lifespans. <laughs> After eating that crap. The, the Doctor Who pattern book, is that the one with the picture of those two fine fellows? <laughs> that was those... me and you, Rob, yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. Were they on machinery or something like that? Have you operating yeah, they're on, <laughs> on Bob the Builder. Look, for purely safety reasons, never wear Doctor Who-themed uh, uh, clothing and operate heavy machinery. There was no vis vests or anything. It was just basically, yeah. And they're looking quite pensive and... Uh... Off into the distance? Yeah. <laughs> they're wondering, when do I get my paycheck and can I go home now? <laughs> I hope nobody sees this 30 years later and puts it on some blog. Guess what, fellas, it happened. It's like Sylvester Stallone uh, in his early career as a porn star. Uh, you know, it, it, we don't want to bring that up, even though I've just have. Was Barbara Streisand in one as well? 
What? Jeez, oh, I don't know. Hang on, really? Yeah, I thought that was. Uh, we'll consult our lawyers on that and get it back to everyone. Memories. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, imagine Yentl as a porn movie. It's like that clip of you know, Kenny ever did with a nose. And just every time he turns around. <laughs> Actually, my favourite Kenny Everett clip was he's the preacher. Oh, yeah. And every time they cut back to him, his hands get bigger and bigger. Brotherly love. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's oh, Kenny Everett. There's a new documentary on him, actually. It was released late last year on him. Yeah, it was actually quite good. Oh, no. Yes, I think I've uh, yeah. <clears throat> got that one. Yeah, had Roger Taylor of uh, Queen in there. And, uh, oh. yeah, it was actually quite good. Very sad. It was sad. sad. Oh, sad in a way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's look, for... for, for um, the 80s, I mean, homosexuals during the 80s, the whole HIV AIDS thing was just... Uh, Horrific. was a terrible scourge. And, Absolutely. Um, and fortunately, Kenny succumbed to it, so very sad. Yeah, along with Freddie Mercury, and uh, it was actually 25 years ago yesterday that uh, Queen released their Innuendo album in 1991. I remember, because um, I was at university at that time, and uh, when they... Uh, there was a, no internet back then, or very rudimentary, so we got news of uh, Freddie Mercury's death via the newspaper. And a friend of mine who I'd gone to high school with uh, and who also attended the same university and lived at the same college, uh, he, I took the news clipping to him. So that was the first time he'd heard that Freddie. And he was a huge Queen fan. I mean, he'd given me, you know, Queen's greatest hits to listen to. And, you know, whenever I was over in his room, we'd have the, we'd have the Queen greatest hits playing in the background. And I showed him the clip and he, he actually wept a little. It was quite sad, so... It was actually on the news. I remember it was on an RDO the day the news came through and... Uh... Uh, yeah, I was watching the TV news and it said he died. And look, I you know I cried because I was a massive, I still am a massive Queen mm. fan. So uh, yeah. How we get how we get yeah. into this terrible sadness cul-de-sac? I think the news of Moffat's departure has really affected. I know it's affected me. Open a wound. It's affected me. Any other light-hearted topics on uh, it? Do we have any? You mentioned the X Files before, Rob. You've caught up with it since its return. Yes, I have. Uh, when it, when the news came out. Last year, I think, well, it had to have been last year, that the X-Files was coming back. Uh, I was surprised and actually really looking forward to it. I, fa- I found myself really looking forward to it because I was a massive fan of the show in the 90s. I would, I think it was shown here in Melbourne on a Thursday evening. So uh, I would actually tape episodes on videotape. I think I still have some of those tapes. I'd, I'd tape it and, uh, and watch it at the same time. And it, it just sort of, as I've said numerous times before, it, would, it really fitted with what I was interested in at that time and still interested, you know. You know, spooky stuff, uh, conspiracy, paranoia, that sort of thing. I really enjoyed, and the two leads, especially Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, uh, really hit the hit the ground running, and the, and the, the chemistry that they had launched a thousand <laughs> a thousand internet, well, soon to be internet memes and all that sort of thing. Uh, so when it's and uh, it can't, it's coming back, and you know there was sort of six episodes and a uh, little bit of trepidation that they'd, that they'd fumble the ball, Chris Carter. Because Chris Carter did a, a pilot last year for sort of Amazon uh, and it was appalling. It was absolutely <laughs> appalling. And I thought, well, he's not really done anything of note since uh, The X-Files finished and Millennium uh, finished. So I've watched the first three episodes now. The first episode uh, is the weakest of the three, uh, with the third episode being uh, not necessarily typical of what the x-files is all about but sort of a sub branch of what you know a, a, a humorous x-file um story that they used to do periodically so i'm really enjoying it at the moment and um uh, hopefully it gets renewed i suppose it, it more depends because the ratings have been pretty strong it depends on whether Duchovny and anderson want to come back i mean i was surprised to begin with that they decided to come back at all uh, given the relative successes of both of their careers, well away from you know genre television, um, 
yeah so i'm glad that they're back and i'm really enjoying it i felt a real nostalgic rush hearing the theme song mark snow's uh, theme song again uh a title music sorry and and seeing them in the role clearly Duchovny has aged a great deal um, i'm a bit worried about his vocal delivery has he had a stroke or something he has aged Julian Anderson looks fantastic. If you see her in the fall, the two series of the mm. fall, she's she's even more fantastic looking. I think it must be that soft British light as opposed to the. Uh, anyway, she uh, she looks wonderful for. Um, I think she's in her late or mid forties now, mid forties. So yeah. delightful. I watched it as well. Uh, look, I'm not. I wasn't a massive X Files fan in the in the nineties. If it was on, I'd, I'd watch it. Um, but I didn't tape it every week. There's some episodes that really sort of stuck out in my mind that I watched that were really good. Uh, I can't get the image of the lady under the bed when she's been inbreeding with a family out of my head. Uh, that was actually maybe <laughs> to start gagging. Physically right? sick. Uh, I sat down and watched the, the three episodes and I thought they were great. I really enjoyed them. The, 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 as you said, the third episode was more... It reminded me a bit of Love of Monsters. <laughs> it was just batshit weird, wasn't it, really? It was, um, but it's not surprising because the writer Darren Morgan uh, is responsible for, for one of the, the, the great... Uh, atypical X-Files stories, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Mm. Uh, so it's no surprise that he went he went down that path. I think he even directed it as well. I mean, there's some lovely touches in that episode. Uh, there's the tombs, the, tomb, the gravestones for, for Kim Manners, mm. who, who directed over 50 episodes of the X-Files and passed away a few years ago. So, um, And, of course, Mulder having the X-Files uh, title music yeah. as his ringtone <laughs> is just, you know, wonderfully meta in, mm. in, 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 in a great way. Mm. Um, it, it's It's... I don't, it's no surprise that the X-Files works as well now in our media, internet-saturated age with government surveillance and, and all that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's the opportunities for great paranoid conspiracy uh, storytelling there, as there was in the 90s. I mean, it, I, people of a certain age will remember that era as being laden with conspiracy theories, especially around the Clinton administration and, 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 and all that sort of thing. And, and of course, gov- massive government agencies operating, operating in the background, uh, especially with America as the sole superpower after the, you know, the, 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 the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. And it, it, it's, I've often thought that the X-Files would work as equally well in the 1970s, uh, again, simply because of um, superpower rivalry, massive government agencies, uh, cover-ups, you know, famously Watergate, conspiracy uh, theories, um, Karen Silkwood, I think, with um, uh, her, her, her uh, campaign against nuclear energy and her disappearance or her death, uh, Three Mile Island, all that sort of thing um, works for the X-Files works as equally well in the 70s as it did in the 90s and, and now in the 21st century. So there's still stories to tell, I think, and hopefully uh, it's renewed. I, I, I don't uh, worry overly that it, it, it might only be six or eight or ten episodes like the sort of the Netflix model mm. because again Duchovny is, is got a, a reasonably big series now with Aquarius and Gillian Anderson I think is doing a third series of The Fall for instance in the UK and, mm. and is in, in high demand especially in television she's actually uh, she's the real star of the show I've, I've, I've often found especially re-watching um, the, the 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 now classic series of the X Files. She uh, she really does shine. Does Doctor Who uh, need to go down to a six episode run or an eight episode run? Do you think? Oh, the BBC would have conniptions um, if if you know Chimwell turned around and said I can only manage six or eight episodes uh, because it's such a money spinner. Even though it's coming off the boil in the UK in terms of viewing figures, it still sells very well around the world and and, and as 
even though they appear to be scrapping the bottom of the cookbook uh, cooking barrel. There's merchandise plenty, so I think six episodes would be a grave mistake in the BBC's eyes. I think they're probably nervous on uh, multiple levels at the moment because have uh, you seen the new Top Gear lineup that was announced? Matt LeBlanc! So that threw Twitter into a frenzy saying the show is dead. So, you know, Doctor Who, as you said, has been on the, off the boil at the moment, so they're probably concerned on many fronts in terms of how their flagship shows are going. If the BBC were concerned hmm. and wanted to uh, maximise their return on investment, why only settle for... I mean, this is the whole showrunner model uh, failing, the, failing the BBC. If Moffat is only capable of doing 12 or 13 episodes a year because of the sheer workload... And the BBC want more episodes. I don't think we could argue that the BBC, you know, doesn't want more episodes. Why are there not two production teams working in parallel? Because Doctor Who is uniquely able to, to fit that. You have uh, Moffat or Chibnall doing their thing for 12 weeks of the year. And you have another production team doing their thing for 12 weeks of the year. And I'm going to hear the groans now. Grab McGann in or grab Matt's, Matt Smith in for a six-run special because his career's going nowhere. Or get Tennant in, you know, or get a classic doctor in, perhaps. McGann would be the only option, really. But uh, no, that's that possibly you could you could. There would be ways of getting, for instance, Davison in uh, or McCoy in. Less charitably, probably not Colin Baker, though you could sort of squint really tight. But I mean, there's. <laughs> Is there not a way to... I mean, I know the BBC is strapped for cash at the moment and uh, they're under attack from all quarters, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in the past, is there any rational reason other than, or oh, we don't want to deflect from uh, the, the the main series, why they couldn't do something like that? I mean, you contract it out. You, you put the risk onto some other entity, you know? Yeah. Onto another production company and say, well, you know, you, we're, we're asking you to do this. Do it for us and we'll pay you money. And then we'll reap the merchandising benefit down the track. Absolutely. Um, they could have said, look, Moffat, take a break. We'll get somebody else in to run it for a year. Paul, wanted a break as well. Get McGann in, do a couple of specials. Uh, I'm surprised they're not doing any specials. I thought we've got a couple of specials and Moffat went. The oversight on two shows running in parallel might be greater for him. I don't know. I think it's probably a bit of a wasted opportunity just having nothing, unless there's some missing episodes being announced. <clears throat> well, I'm a- <laughs> well, my thesis that the show... They're making the show 60% because of, you know, they want to tell a story and 40% because they want to make a crap load of money. Well, why not maximise your return? But anyway, anyway, I'm probably showing my naivety, but who knows? But remember in the uh, in the 70s when they used to do Doctor Who repeats, they used to say you can't run any repeats that are not, what's it called, out of Doctor? So, you know, if you had Pertwee, you couldn't run Trout and repeats. Well, there's only three left at the time anyway. <laughs> Because only when JNT came on that that sort of taboo was broken. Mm. I think for a year of nothing, um, I would have liked something, and you could put put McGann in absolutely for a special two. There are reports, or there have been reports, I read in the Guardian um, that the the BBC is being pushed to you know farming more, even more of its production out mm. to production houses to to allow mm. independent producers to have a go. And this is this is um, a perfect model for the BBC. You know, it doesn't necess- Doctor Who doesn't necessarily have to be made in house, because it, and as we'll talk about in our next topic, Doctor Who doesn't fit the remit originally envisaged for it anymore. It's not an educational program. It hasn't been an educational program for probably forty plus years. It's purely an entertainment uh, uh, 
It's just purely there for entertainment. So don't worry about it being made by the BBC in-house anymore. Farm it out, squeeze the dollar out of it, or squeeze the pound out of it as much as you can, and get multi-tracks of, of storytelling going. The, the viewer is not going to be confused, you know, because, you know, because the, the marketeers won't allow them to be confused. And then it fulfills the BBC, you know, what the, the, the British government is imposing on the BBC. It gets more money in for the BBC. It gives the viewers what they want, you know, the fans, which is more Doctor Who. And it's, it, no one's going to be confused about the twin tracks that are going on. I mean, if you look about uh, some TV shows today that are going in, you've got you know, Arrow and The Flash. Yes, Supergirl. Yeah, Supergirl. They're all made by the same mob. They're all having crossover episodes and things like that. So it can be done. I think it's just a failure of imagination. And it comes down to that only one man can do it. Which is a mistake. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's just self-defeating. Lost opportunity. Absolutely. 16 months is too long to wait. Bring back McGann, don't hesitate. How's that? I like it, Mark. I like it. You, you, should, you should take it to someone important and get them to do it. Ian, where are you, son? courtesy of Doctor Who news page we thought we'd just do on this day or who anniversaries the episodes of uh, Doctor Who and the Solarians is broadcast part 2 Seeds of Doom part 2 and Keeper of Traken part 2 were all broadcast on this day on the 7th of February well there's two and a half very good stories you don't like Keeper of Traken that much? Uh, I, I like it, but it's not doesn't hold a candle to those other two stories. Coincidence that they're all episode two. I was just commenting on that. Seeds of Doom is wonderful, mm. really, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's again, it's it's atypical of Doctor Who, in a sense. But uh, for those you know six episodes, it's it's great. It really it's great. Is. And Solarians is good too. Yes, I mean it, it combines sort of thought provoking drama and you know action adventure, which series season seven managed to do really really well i mean that's a great run of 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 episodes uh there's there's not a clunker in that season is there no there isn't i mean ambassadors of death in the 80s was always the worst pertwees ever that's because nobody had seen it (laughs) in 10 or 15 years previously and uh, ambassadors is fantastic especially with the troubled production history of that story in terms of mm. the scripts it passed from one writer to another so, so yeah it was a great story that series manages to combine sort of pulp storytelling with a with a more adult approach it's hard to credit that season Troughton's last season season six uh is the same tv show as Pertwee's first year because it, it's just i mean you know obviously transitioning to color makes a difference but it's just a quantum leap um, in storytelling, really, isn't it? It's gone from kids' show to um, adult drama. drama. Oh, adult, 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 drama. A, adultish drama, isn't it, really? Because everybody says how great season seven is, and it is. Mm. Should Derek Sherwin have most of the credit for that, or is it? do you think it's Barry Letts? Oh, I think Sherwin, definitely. Mm. Because they, Barry, Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks really didn't embrace it because they moved in a completely different direction in the following year, which is understandable because you want to impose your own vision on the show. I mean, it's, it's like uh, Tom Baker's first story is very much a Pertwee production, um, a Pertwee-era production, and then Hinchcliffe and, and Holmes with Ark in Space go off in a completely different direction. So I think Sherwin should get much of the lion's share of the glory for se- season seven. Um, yeah, definitely. He certainly thinks so. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, why, why wouldn't you? You, would, you wouldn't. Why, why be a retiring... Shy retiring violet with these sort of things. I mean, you, you pour a year or more of your life into creating this, 
Mm. Why not take the glory? Why not take the uh, the applause of the audience? Have you read his biography? Uh, no. Any good? I haven't read it either. Oh, okay. So, is is it? I was great most of the way through. I suppose probably. I think it was Fig Jam. <laughs> I like Keeper of Track, and I, the last time I watched it was when I picked up the um, the box set that it, it forms part of. It's a very, very production wise. It's a very pretty, very nice looking story, isn't it? It is. Would you say it's twee? I don't think so. I don't think the theme of the story, the themes of the story, allow it to be twee. I mean, it mm. is. It is about decay and dissolution, uh, and an end of things, um, and uh, that would be uh, an antidote to any sort of saccharine uh, feel to the story. I remember when we did our cliffhangers or what the WTF uh, top five a few weeks ago. And when I was doing my, you know, right, sitting down and thinking about what stories or what moments um, would, f- would qualify in my top five, I did give serious consideration to the last moments of uh, of the Keeper of Truck and where, you know, Trumas is uh, is taken over by the Master. And uh, that moment, I think, fits the tone more than any other almost in that, se- in that season or that, that group of episodes uh, for the end of an era that um, Trumas sort of being taken over and losing his identity and becoming something else matches the tone of that, of that season and actually sort of prefigures what happens to the Doctor at the end of Legopolis because he too loses his identity and becomes some, someone or something else. Mm. Um, so uh, on, on reflection, probably three good stories on, uh, that went out uh, on this day many, many years ago. I'd like to change your mind. I like season 18. Yes, I think I like the, the latter half of it. Uh, more than the the, the beginning, uh, it's Megloss. Is it uh, not Megloss? It's Leisure Hive, isn't it? That starts it off. Leisure Hive starts it off. Megloss is sort of. Uh, it, it doesn't fit, does it? It tries to. Doesn't quite fit. It would have fit to the year before perfectly. Oh, absolutely. I think timing was everything on that one. So, Mark, we're now moving on to our next topic, our main topic for the uh, for the episode, which is uh, we're just going to chat uh, broadly, generally, about uh, the show itself in terms of its appeal to. Uh, is it really a kids show? Is it a, is it a, is it a show that uh, has been a- aimed at you know sort of the older teenager, or is it an adult show now? Um, if it ever was a kids show, when did it transition from being a kids show to something for older people? Uh, has it ever during its uh, its history gone back to being a children's show um, and, and sort of what approach is being taken now with a modern series as everyone knows and there's no point rehashing it to any great extent the idea behind Doctor Who was to fill the gap between Grandstand the afternoon sports show on the BBC and Jukebox Jury so I suppose uh, the BBC wanted something that uh, was for adults and for kids uh, but also on top of that was uh, the BBC's, you know, the, the sort of the, the whole remit or the idea of the BBC was to educate the populace. So there was an educational aspect to the, to the series, uh, which we sort of saw in An Unearthly Child, the first four episodes, though um, when you think about it, cavemen, uh, there's not going to be much educational opportunity because we don't know really much about it. And very limited dialogue opportunities, as we saw. Exactly. And I've often thought that if the show was, you know, going to be an educational program, and we did see that to a great extent with historicals. I mean, Reign of Terror, The Massacre, uh, The Gunfighters to a lesser extent, Smugglers. Pretty quickly abandoned it by taking uh, the bug-eyed monster approach with the Daleks, the very second story, which garnered great, you know, huge ratings for the BBC. And 
influenced the show at a fundamental level, didn't it? I don't think if the Daleks weren't successful, that would still be A, watching it, and B, talking about it today. Mm. It would have been just quietly forgotten. Though, having said that, I mean, there is that sort of pulpy aspect to the Daleks where it's, you know, bug-eyed monsters uh, menacing, uh, you know, pretty companions with their plungers. But the whole, the overall theme of the story, which talks about uh, pacifism versus war and uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the perils of, of the nuclear age that people were living in and that we continue to live in. So there are those sort of more philosophical questions that are popped up, which... In a, you know, uh, I'm sure Terry Nation was leaning more to the pulpier aspects than to the, uh, the 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 sort of more philosophical grounding. But there were there were things in that story and, and subsequent stories that you could tease out that uh, could be aimed at kids to sort of get them thinking about the world that they lived in. So if you had to start the series again, instead of doing it an unearthly child, and you had to pick one of the Hartnell stories to start the series, which one do you think would have done a better job? Like, could the Daleks have been the introduction to the series. Basically, what you could do, an unearthly child, you can tag that on to the beginning of the Daleks. Yes. You could have that episode and then go straight into the Daleks, have an eight-parter. Or even just have an, an unearthly child as a one-parter. I mean, those three episodes don't really have much impact to it, apart from Ian stopping the Doctor, to smashing the Doctor's head in. Yes. Yeah, you don't really need the rest of it, do you? No, no. And thinking about it, the Doctor smashing someone's head in is not really kid-friendly, is it? <laughs> No, and they were going to overdub a sound of a lettuce getting smashed over the, uh, the, the image. I think, I can't remember if it was Verity Lambert who pulled away from that, and luckily we did. But with Doctor Who, though, it was always made by the series and serials department. It was never made by the children's department. So uh, I think for Doctor Who, it was getting that balance between the demographic where children, teenagers, families could watch it. And Tom Baker definitely talks about it in this, the Who's Doctor Who, where you've got the eight-year-old scared out of their, out of their mind, you've got the 12-year-old, um, was the 14-year-old telling the youngest kid to be quiet while he's watching it, and then the adult saying how great this is. Mm. So Doctor Who, I think, has always tried to pitch across a, a wide demographic. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. And again, it, it fulfills that remit where it's a sort of a... At that stage, back in the 60s, it was a crossover point for adults and kids to come together for that 25 minutes and, and watch, uh, watch television together. So in, in, in the end, I suppose, the show is at that point was pitched for a general audience, the broadest audience possible, and it reflected it in the ratings, didn't it? I yeah. mean, it was getting 10 and 11 and 12 million viewers for a lot of that first season, and you couldn't do that solely as a, as a, as a children's show, could you? You wouldn't get those viewers. No, absolutely right. I mean, also helped that I don't think there's anything like it uh, on British television at the time. If it was a copy or a, a, subtle, a subtle rip-off of something else, then it might not have been as successful. But if you wanted to go and see Bug-Eyed Monsters, you had to go to the movies. And not many parents may, might have taken the, movie, the kids to go and see it on the film. So actually, you watch it on television uh, every Saturday night getting served up something interesting uh, and new mm. would have been exciting. So that therefore, the ratings were great. But then again, you, got, you only had two channels to, to, to watch anyway at the time. So... Well, that's right. A bit like ITV strike of the late 70s. That's right. I mean, there was an earlier science fiction series, The, the Pathfinders to Luna, I think they were. A for Andromeda as well? Oh, no, that was. I think that was more pitched to an, an adult audience. But the, the one that I mentioned was, I think, definitely pitched towards children uh, because it had children in the cast. It was ah. like a, a, a family in space sort of thing. Um, whereas Doctor Who didn't necessarily 
go down that road. I mean, Susan is is the youngest member of the cast, but she's not a child, as such. She's a teenager, as as depicted on the show, as sort of a, a, an odd teenager. And there are there are authority figures within the show to sort of provide reassurance to the kids watching. There's there's the doctor, obviously, um, and then there's Ian and, and Barbara, who are who, who are teachers. You know, kids would see those sort of figures every day. Hmm. And, and and in a sense, that sort of gave reassurance to the adults watching as well that the the their children's minds weren't being polluted by just you know blatant science fiction pulp adventure. No, but there was there was some educational remit to the show mm. um, that, that, that that they were happy, that, that would mean that the parents were happy for their kids to watch. And with Doctor Who's format, it could go anywhere, do anything at any time. Sounds like the goodies, but <laughs> it, which, which was definitely which, aimed at which kids. Definitely aimed at kids. Uh, but you know, to an, to an extent, you had the Daleks one seven weeks. You had Marco Polo. You know, you're switching back and forth all the time. So, on the off chance the parents did maybe catch it, they were watching an adventure with Marco Polo. And you got to remember, in the fifties and sixties, you know, TV was referred to as the idiot box. Mm. There was a bit of a you know, if you watch TV too much, then your brains turn to mush and don't learn anything. So, having that educational remit. Uh, certainly, I think helped that, but, but parents were actually happy for their kids to, to watch it because they might learn something about it. That's right, and you can see. I mean, I suppose if the if we're asking the question, when did um, Doctor Who sort of abandon that educational remit for the kids? It's I suppose mm. it, for me, it's it's when uh, not necessarily the Daleks, I suppose, but when they sort of abandoned uh, doing historicals uh, because then the the show was completely in the thrall of being a science fiction adventure. Uh, series. I think it was under Innes Lloyd. Is that right? That they sort of abandoned. Yeah, that's right. Abandoned the historical. Uh, the, I suppose the perception was that it wasn't getting the ratings that the other type of series or stories were. They almost dumbed it down a bit, didn't they? If you look at some of those Troughton episodes, they are made for kids. I mean, Will in Space, I think, is made for kids. It's aimed squarely at kids. Mm. I think some of the Troughton stories and and his era has been slightly dumbed down a bit. Well, I mean doing an, an educational, I mean having a having a story with a with a an educational frame to it like an like an historical. Um, you there is a degree of rigor that you need to bring to the story. You can't you I mean you you can't make the facts up. You can bend them for the dramatic purposes and shape them, but you you need to adhere to at least to the sort of the historical framework and then tell your exciting adventure within that. Um, mm. But when they abandoned that, they abandoned that sort of rigor, and they went for a well. Let's just tell a story, and it doesn't matter how fantastical it necessarily is, and we can pitch it every way we want. I mean, my wife and I. I mean, this is and this is a common refrain refrain in in TVs and movies that when you're looking at an historical topic, uh, the the history, the known facts, uh, bent and shaped to the needs of the, the drama. My wife and I watched Selma last night, which talks about the uh, a key moment in the civil rights movement in the 60s with Martin Luther King and, and the march from Selma to Montgomery and Alabama. There's certain aspects of the storyline that attracted criticism because the way Lyndon Johnson, uh, the US president at the time, is depicted as being uh, obstructionist or, or against what Martin Luther King was wanting to do is not necessarily reflected in the historical record. Uh, it's the whole Patriot uh, thing about you know the Mel Gibson movie, how that made uh, certain British uh, officers into quasi Nazis just purely for dramatic effects. Um, so 
the, when you sort of drop that the, the historical storytelling, you go away from that sort of rigor, you and, and you sort of embrace the sort of just let it all hang out sort of storytelling. Do you think it was slightly patronizing though that these in terms of historical stories, we will spoon feed historical information to to children to get them to learn and understand uh, historical events. There's nothing more patronising than having uh, senior managers or saying, let's give this for the children <laughs> and we'll serve this up to them. All we've got is the ratings to go on, but actually kids, did, did kids actually enjoy those stories? You know, the Aztecs and Marco Polo and, I mean, the Myth Makers and the Massacre is certainly quite grim, but we don't have any... Uh, anecdotal evidence sort of say if actually they enjoyed them well i suppose the anecdotal evidence that we could rely on is the fact that kids were running around in the playground uh, pretending to be daleks but that was a daleks wasn't yeah, it yeah but no one was pretending to be marco polo <laughs> exactly try reenacting the massacre in the, play- <laughs> in the playground not the most cheeriest of uh of subject matters really the smugglers, maybe, with, you know, pirates and things like that, but nobody's really watching towards in the Billy's time anyway. It is interesting. I mean, the BBC... I mean, when television was introduced, I've read that there was, you know, Churchill wasn't a big fan of the idea of television. I don't think he, he wanted the, the lower orders to, to necessarily have that sort of entertainment. So the BBC, it, it feels to me was uh, in, in doing the educational remit thing, was attempting to justify its, its reason for being its, its, its existence. Um, and, and when that sort of resistance to TV uh, being around sort of dropped away, um, it was happy to embrace a more populist mode of, uh, of storytelling, uh, especially for the time, um, the, the time of the evening that it went out. It wasn't a, a morning show for the kids. I mean, you know, the TV landscape these days in the in the morning and in the afternoon is littered with with children's shows. I mean, I know my 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 upbringing was in the morning play school on Sesame Street, and in the afternoon, whatever was on the Hardy Boys, the Banana Splits. Was it Shaw's Neighborhood? Oh yes, with Claude the Crow. Claude the Crow. That was a great show, wasn't it? And, and then you sort of transition away from that, and you sort of take on more adult things. But uh, did I mean, in t- as the show evolved, I mean, clearly, I mean, we've already talked about it. The the Troughton era. Where there's a Troughton is a more clownish figure than 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 uh, than Hartnell and presents mm-hmm. a different experience for the for the child watcher. That transition to the more you know adult themes of of season seven uh, particularly. Is there anything there for kids in season seven? Yeah, other than the pulp storytelling aspects, I suppose. Well, in terms of an educational remit, very little. The possibility of drilling to the center of the earth can be discounted now, can it? I forgot about that one. <laughs> Are they still drilling these days? Obviously the Silurians as well, or the Eocenes as they should have been. I mean, that's just, that's education gone wrong, really, isn't it? It is, isn't the name, it? You've got the name wrong, so uh, it should have been Doctor Who and the Eocenes. So look, there, there is an educational remit, absolutely. You know, thinking about it now, you've got... There are subtle hints, yes, aren't there? there is. Not shoved down your throats as much as it was, say, in the Reign of Terror. But education aside, just as pure entertainment value to keep the attention of the children... There, there are aspects. I mean, it's it's more the visual aspects, isn't it, that kids latch onto? I mean, because the, all this talk about, um, you know, the conspiracies in the background, say, for ambassadors, uh, or the philosophical thing, should we engage in genocide in, in the Silurians? Um, the kids aren't really going to be. That's going to go over their heads, really, isn't yeah. it? They're not. They're not fixed on that sort of thing. It's it's the look of the Silurians. It's the it's the look of the Martians striding around in the astronauts' uniform. It's the uh, you know the the people who touched the green goo in Inferno, the the regression, the primords, I think they were called. It's it's the Autons, isn't it? Really, that the kids will latch onto. So, 
even though Doctor Who a lot of the time uh, was derided for its poor special effects, it's um, the imagery, the key iconography of the show is what I think kids would have latched onto, and you can see that. I mean, kids people talk about the giant maggots. Um, they talk about the, the look of the Daleks. The, all those sort of imagery. It's the imagery that keeps on coming back. No one talks about the philosophical ramifications of bombing the Silurians as a, as a key memory. Mm. Um, it's the visuals. Uh, but you're right. It's about it's one with the maggots, one with the spiders. It's people. It made the impression on people at the time they were watching in the age or watching that as well. Like you just mentioned before, Keeper of Trakan when I was 12 watching that. That's the image of that stuck in my mind as well. I think it's about also when you watch it when you watch the show and when it starts making, you know, your memory starts imprinting things. Exactly, exactly. Me and you would probably have, or you and I, would probably have stronger memories of the show, visual memories from the 70s, than we would necessarily from the 80s because, you know, well, it just it just makes, it's just your point, isn't it? That you, as you're developing, you're, you're forming, you're having those images imprinted in you. People who watch the show in the 60s, the Yeti in the underground, mm. that's probably their moment. The Cybermen, I mean, I remember reading David J. Howe's blog about key images in his, his mind. So that's when he was watching it. So when we were watching it, there were obviously key scenes and imagery that imprinted on us. Fast forward to, say, the Hinchcliffe era, where the show's demographic is slightly now pitched more towards the 12 year old and there's slightly more horror content coming through but was the Hinchcliffe era do you think a step too far in terms of what it did for kids? I think it surprises adults when they become parents how willing they, their children are to embrace something that's frightening on the television. Mm-hmm. I think kids can make the distinction between something that's frightening in real life versus something that's frightening on the television. Now, obviously, you wouldn't plonk a four-year-old in front of the TV and for a Hinchcliffe show because some of the visuals in that are quite terrifying and you don't want your child screaming and running away. But I think a, an older child, a 10-year-old, could readily cope with what's going on, say, in, in the Hinchcliffe era because they can distinguish between fact and fantasy mm. to an extent. I mean, my daughter, my oldest daughter is now 10, when she was, I think, seven or eight and she saw the Ice Lady from the Snowman episode, she was quite scared of that. But now she looks back on that a little bit, in a sense, fondly. She goes, oh, that, that Doctor Who episode, Dad, with the Ice Lady. And she's got a smile on her face. So I think that, you know, now she could probably, she's probably old enough just to be able to watch some of the Hinchcliffe stuff because... She's old enough now to distinguish fact from fantasy. Enjoy the thrill, the safe thrill of the spooky thing on the TV. And then once the TV's off and goes goes around her normal life, uh, it's not going to overly affect her. My daughter won't watch that Doctor Who at all. The new series or some elements of the older series? Any of it. Okay. <laughs> Any of it. <laughs> Doesn't want to borrow of it. I think I mentioned this before. I made the mistake of when and in the ABC was repeating uh, series three. They had Blink on, my eight-year-old was watching The Weeping Angels, and this is slightly neglectful on my part. I was doing what I was doing and, and ignoring him a little bit. Mm. And my wife comes in and goes, what episode is this? And it's Weeping Angels. She goes, oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> so I then had to turn it off and he had a few bad dreams for a couple of nights. So again, it's about that imagery, isn't it? Because the story itself is not that scary. No. But it's about how it was shot, how it was lit, 
and the rapid editing of those of those statues moving. But we've sort of digressed into mm. the new series here. But yeah, my kids won't really. They don't. They don't seek it out. Are you going to show your daughter uh, Horror Fang Rock? Surely you'd have to. <laughs> Uh, that has, if I was, they they wouldn't sit down and watch all four episodes in one hit. No. But, I mean, they're now reaching the stage where they can. I mean, they can sort of watch a slightly more sophisticated level of storytelling and sort of more spookier stuff. I mean, I I remember a few years ago I bought the the box the the, the set of Ghostbusters movies and uh, watched the first one with them and because they were sitting with me, they were fine. But then I made the mistake of allowing them to watch the second one by themselves, and my eldest daughter was was really upset about uh, what she was was seeing, and you know had to be turned off. Um, whereas now I think she she could get away with it, um, with, with with watching it. I mean they've started getting into sort of more older TV shows like The House of uh, Anubis, which is a British series which has sort of supernatural themes, and they're addicted to it. You know, if any free moment they'll throw that onto the onto the DVD player and and, and watch that. So that's sort of, and again, that's sort of pitched a little bit older now. Um, and for that reason alone, I think they could probably cope with something like horror of Fang Rock. Over here in the 70s and 80s, quite a few Tom Baker stories and Pertwee stories were edited by the ABC, weren't they? Some of the scenes we talk about, uh, we didn't see. Like Pyramids of Mars had chunks ripped out of it. Case of Andazani Part 4, I think, ran for about three minutes. <laughs> Famously. From an ABC perspective and the census perspective, and the time slot it was in as well, it was 6.30, wasn't it? So they thought it was a kid's show. Yes. If you think about this, the scenes they edited out, they were convinced that it was a, oh, this time slot is for kids, it's a kid's show, we're going to hack everything out, well, that's going to be inappropriate. Some And some of the scenes I've hacked out of it were completely, now are just completely ridiculous. I mean... We had Dalek Master Plan completely rejected uh, based on mm. the storyline and, and, and the images. And it was actually uh, easy for them just to reject the story outright as opposed to wholesale editing. So it's also about how the network and, and the how they perceive the, the, the program as well. Yeah, you sometimes think that the people who run the children's section of any TV station or network mm. have got little idea about what kids can tolerate. I mean, it's... It, it it just seems sometimes that they're it's over very over overly protective, um, to the extent where they're sort of you know infantilizing the kids who are watching yeah. it. You know they just they just can't cope with it. Um, we we have it's like an it's a nanny state approach where it's the whole decision making process is taken out of the hands of the parents who should be you know sitting down and watching these things with their kids and making decisions on the fly. Mm. Uh, and the BBC, or the BBC, the ABC, just takes it out of the hands of uh, of the parents entirely. If you look at Hinchcliffe, like I would never show my kids. Let's sit down on a Sunday afternoon, watch Brian and Morbius. I watched um, Revenge of the Cybermen with with my son when he was a lot younger, and mm. you know he could he could quite comfortably watch that without getting uh, scared or anything anything like that. And I think if I was to try and show another classic series serial to him. I'd probably pitch from something in the Graham Williams era. That was made for, I think, children. Mm. And Lala Waters said famously, it was a kid show. And once they um, mm. brought Chris Bidmead in and they, they, they abandoned the kids and made it more for the intelligent 12-year-old, they lost quite a lot of viewers. The, the kids were off watching Buck Rogers, weren't they? Yes, I was, Rob. Why did you bring that up? <laughs> Which, what was the, I mean, you know, what was the appeal for you, Mark? with Buck Rogers as a child. It's like trying to describe the Cardassians, really. Um, so it was just glitzy and new and exciting where 
Doctor Who at that time, and I I drifted in and out of the program. I wasn't an avid viewer every week. I don't seem to remember. It aligned more with Star Wars on telly, so I'm going to watch that because it's got spaceships flying around, it's got robots, and 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 it just seems a lot more fun. Where Doctor Who probably wasn't. It's I suppose it's no coincidence. It's no surprise that the the, the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, rips wholesale from Star Wars. That you know, A New Hope. Um, it, it, it is looking to seed a new generation of children to come back again and again to the franchise and the merchandise. Uh, and, the, and they've taken those tropes, those, that, that storyline, those aspects that appealed to kids back in 1977 and, and have put it, put it in the new movie. Um, they're, just, they're just betting down a new generation of kids who will become uh, merchandise-buying adults. We're going to digress here because uh, when I saw this, The Force Awakens... As you said, I was grinning like a like an eight year old mm. watching it because it invoked so many memories of the original the original films for me, and just watching it in the cinema and it was just it was an awesome experience. Like watching you know Day of the Doctor. I mean Day of the Doctor is, I suppose, the Doctor Who equivalent of The Force Awakens. Yes, where it just taps into a lot of nostalgia, and there's a bit of rewriting of continuity, but I didn't see any waters. Yeah, a bit, a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Moffat's Crimes Against Continuity. Hey, that's a, that's a podcast, isn't it? That's really? a podcast. We'll never forget, but we'll never forgive. <laughs> Graham Williams for you. I mean, could you sit down with your kids and watch a Graham Williams story? A good one? <sighs> a good one. I don't know that they would take it seriously enough. Well, the actors certainly weren't, were they? No, I, I, th- I think that my girls would be more interested in something uh, a little bit spookier, a little bit darker... Mm. Uh, so something from the Hinchcliffe era, than something lighter uh, from the something lighter from the um, uh, the uh, the Williams era, because I think the Williams era stuff is, is pitched a little bit. It, it, it's it's pitched a little bit higher for a, sort of the sophisticated teenager, perhaps. Or that's that's my feel that you know there's the sort of witty repartee or banter. That the, my kids might necessarily might not necessarily pick up on. I mean, we all laud the dialogue in City of Death, and I don't think my kids would sort of, you know, pick up on that at at, at all. Um, whereas the visuals from the Hinchcliffe era, I think would they would. And you know, as you mentioned before, I think I, I wouldn't show Seeds of Tomb to them uh, because it's just horrifying. Maybe uh, Horror of Fang Rock because there's it's not overtly horrifying as such it's more a mood piece an atmosphere atmosphere piece and i think that that would appeal to them more than than anything else in the in the in the williams era plus it's any doctor who dvd you own <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right that's, i have a i have a separate tv and a separate dvd player and it's on high rotation in the corner of the living room for 24/7 so i do believe that well what about the what about the JNT era then mark as i mentioned before i think the JNT era with with Bidme when he came on board and Barry Letts as well uh, they did strip some of the fun out of it they did pitch it not towards the kids but for the 12 year olds and this also coincided with the the home computer revolution as well mm. uh, in the early 80s where kids like myself were getting into home computers. So it was targeting, I won't say nerds, but <laughs> certainly people who liked technology and emerging technology and excited by it. So when they're talking about tachyons and, you know, when you see badly drawn uh, computer graphics, that got me excited. And things like the TARDIS data bank certainly got me excited. But I can understand that if you were eight or nine year old or even younger watching it and going, this is boring. 
Mm. I will switch over to Buck Rogers. Thank you very much. In a sense, it was reflecting... You know, at a certain age, you go through a phase where the world is is, is, a, is a really serious place and you as a teenager have to reflect that world. You've got to be very po-faced and very straight about it and, and, and there's no room for humour or fun. And I think Doctor Who went through that phase... I, I don't mind season 18 at all, but um, I think Doctor Who might have gone through that phase where it was mirroring the its, t- its audience to an extent where all the fun was out, it was stripped out of life and, and, and uh, everything's got to be serious and, and, and don't you dare bring any levity into it because you'll hurt my feelings and blah, blah, blah. I sometimes think that season 18 was l- less about its audience and more about Bidme's personal interests mm. in science and technology and, and, and stuff like that. It didn't necessarily militate against you know good stories as we've you know discussed previously. No, that's right. And when you get into the Davison era, uh, Eric Sauer keeps saying exciting space adventures. And you could show your kids quite comfortably most of those stories in the Davison era, I think. Um, you just have to wear sunglasses because the lighting's so... So bad. So, so <laughs> You could show your kids something like, or kids could watch, say, Earthshock. I mean, even though the, the, the body count is enormous. And that's in episode one. <laughs> yeah, it is. Fast-paced enough to keep their attention. Yes. Whereas if you you wouldn't want want to necessarily watch let them watch uh, say Caves of Androzani, because a lot of it is very transgressive. It it it's you've got Shara's Jack, who is clearly a very very frustrated sexual figure, uh, lusting over uh, Perry, knowing that he can't because of his physical injuries, yet retaining that mindset that you know I'm a man, she's a woman. Uh, you, 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 there's no way on God's green earth that I would let my kids watch that at all, at all. Even though it is an example of superior storytelling in Doctor Who. So Jarek's Jack was the um, was a subtle reference to Doctor Who fans at the time and Perry. You could uh, you could lust after, but you couldn't touch her. <laughs> you couldn't touch. I can't touch her through the TV screen. Um, I have no reason why my pants are around my ankles. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> mm, yes. Mm. Yeah, it's funny the Davis era, isn't it? Really, if you think about it, it's a bit of it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Tonally, tonally, it's all it is all over the shop. Like you know, you couldn't show an eight-year-old Kinder. I mean, I never got it particularly when it screened. Um, you know, when I first saw it, but now I understand a lot of the context of it. Time flight is just bizarre. Time flight is bizarre, and it is not a very good story. But there's enough visuals in there to engage a child's mind. I think. I mean, you have got the Concord, for instance. You got the Ziggurat. You've got um, whoever the master is playing. I can't remember the Khalid, whatever. Khalid. Khalid. That's right. And then the the, the, the transformation where he's just leaking fluid mm. everywhere. Uh, that's what she said. Um, so I, I think you could get away with it. You know the dolls and all that sort of thing. Tiny people. Yeah. Uh, the Xerophim and all that sort of thing. I think I think the visuals would would engage a child for at least five minutes. And in terms of an educational remit, then I think anyone in that era would be too. Would be the Visitation and King's Demons. Off the top of my head, I can't think of yeah, I can't think uh, of anything else. In Arco Infinity, you understand uh, Amsterdam's and its dam systems or mm. uh, underground. Warriors on the cheap. Mark, I think at that point, any any educational aspect that come up in a story was just pure happenstance. I, I don't think there was any great intent, or you know, uh, to 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 force that on the kids. It's just you know, it was just something that came up in the story, and uh, they they moved on. There yeah. was no dwelling on it. And even the the supposed historical. Black Orchid. It's not really a, a historical. It's just set in the no. 20s. It doesn't coincide with an, an event. It's just basically no. they turn up at a party and it, things go pear-shaped. There's nothing. It's an Agatha Christie story. 
I mean, the, the only thing would be your know, kids looking at how other people dressed and the music that they listened to and the lives to, to an extent that they live, the sort of the sleepy English village. But other than that, there's, there's nothing there, There's is nothing there? there. And if you move into the Colin Baker era, where you've got, um, let's be honest, season 22, Video Nasty, would you agree? Uh, oh, let's, not go to, let's, not, <laughs> let's not go down that path. I mean, how could you go down that path? Eric Sayward's talking about taking the handbrake off, but I think he's actually cut the cable. And, <laughs> and it's careering towards a, a cliff. It is, isn't it? The parachute has, has failed to deploy. That's right. I mean, the only one's vaguely... You could watch maybe with the kids in that series. Maybe Mark of the Rani. And that has... Again, it comes down to... There's a bit of educational remit in there. But again, it's... As you said, it's probably by accident more than design. I think I think we can safely say that by this stage, the show is pitched more at teenagers. You have the pretty girl, you know, the pretty luscious looking girl, uh, Perry, for the adults, uh, like Leela was. But at this point, we, we, you know, there's, there's nothing really there for children. I suppose this is bearing the lead. Uh, we should have defined what we regard as being a child. I suppose anyone under the age of 10 um, at that point would have been a child and anyone over is, you know, is a teenager. Anybody younger than us. Is, yeah, yeah. Is a child but they pitched God. season 22 mm. the worst type of teenagers Doctor Who fans yes yes they, they did and then when the show gets the show gets taken off the air comes back and um, grades only direction to J&T is more humour yes but I don't think there's much more humour in it to be honest the tone is definitely lighter yes Vervoid you're dealing with genocide mind warp brain transference yes the Perry dying basically the doctor becoming you know not merely obnoxious but homicidal more so than the previous season (laughs) (laughs) sorry and the last two episodes... It's a it's a nightmare landscape, isn't it, really, that the Doctor's moving through? It's a nightmare landscape for us, reflecting what we were watching at the time. <laughs> I didn't mind the last two episodes of Trial of a Time Lord. I quite like that, that sort of thing. It has aged slightly better than what... Look, it's like you mentioned Ghostbusters too. I watched that with my son a couple of weeks ago. First time I'd seen it since 1989 because I had such bad memories of it. And I watched it again and I said, do you know what? It was actually entertaining, but there was a small problem with it. It wasn't as funny as the first one. No, that's it, isn't it? It's Yeah, they just stripped it out. It's basically it's like Eric Sower had written it and just stripped all the humour out of it. Um, and that was a problem, I think, with it. Where if you go to season 24, now tonally I think that is definitely pitched towards children. Whether it was intentional or unintentional, I don't know. But I remember some of the commentary around that season because my pen friends used to take like points of view and things like and send it over and I used to watch them but it was saying angry parents saying the time slot's too uh, late for my child and it is slightly let's be honest not even slightly pantomime-esque mm. I don't know could you put it in front of your kids yes Tom and the Rani if you wanted to <laughs> really punish them <laughs> you, you could Paradise Towers again it, it comes down to I don't think the stories are pitched at children. I think it's the interpretation and the production values mm. turn it into something uh, that it's originally uh, wasn't probably conceived as. I mean, Delta and Abandonman is probably it's a fun romp, but there is a fair degree of genocide in there as well. <laughs> but I, I think it's fast-paced enough that you could move very swiftly past the genocide genocidal aspects, couldn't you? It's fast-paced enough that I wouldn't watch it again, yeah. Three episodes. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> 
And then it was over. What about, the, I mean, we won't, won't talk about Tally movie because it didn't make much of an impression. So again, it was some kids' first um, taste of Doctor Who, so. They must have been pretty bewildered because there was not much for the next 10 years. No, and then you had 30 seconds of continuity shoved into yes. the first five minutes of it. And then we get to the new series, eh? Well, let's briefly touch on the new series. Um, I, I think, again, RTD's populist instincts ensured that it was pitched at a, a, a mainstream audience, a family audience, more than anything else even though there are certain aspects in the first series, specifically the Moffat one, where there's a Dr. Constantine, they had to chop out the sound effect of his face transmogrifying from human to the mask because apparently you can hear the bones cracking. Uh, So you don't want to scare the kiddies there and you don't want to alienate the parents from uh, allowing their kids to watch. So uh, I think RTD's instincts there was to pitch it as broad as as you could to ensure that it had the widest possible audience to ensure that it was come back for more than one series. Um, And and, and I think it shows uh, more or less. I remember Russell T Davis was having hard times convincing uh, BBC execs about, you know, this is going to be made for a family audience because in their eyes they thought the family audience Mm. was dead in a sense, where, you know, they were off doing their own things, which what people are doing now, actually, if you think about 10, 11 years ago, it's probably more of a family audience watching oh. Doctor Who than what it is now, because it's so much choice. I mean, trying to get my kids corralled to watch a family film that they will all want to be happy with, it's an absolute nightmare, because there's so much choice they have. You know, oh, I don't want to watch that. I'll go in my room and watch this. I go, no, come back and watch this, where uh, we were watching Doctor Who, you know, invariably, we only had one television in the house, and you had to work mm. around it. So, you know, you had to sit down and watch films together. Like, there's some films I watched as a child, I'm probably digressing again, or in my early teens, that I think I wouldn't mind showing my kids that, but they're just not interested in watching it. Mm. Um, there's, there's, there seems to be very little on the TV at the moment that is of a general, you know, family viewing experience. Mm. I think that the as the as the viewing audience has, has, has splintered, so has the um, the producers of content have similarly splintered in what the, in, in their output. So you know you you can watch your comic strip or superhero themed show over there. You can watch your upmarket Downton Abbey soapy over there. As a child, you can watch this, that, and the other. Mm. But in terms of this, I, I mean, I might be wrong, but there just seems to be very little in terms of a family viewing that you can sit down and watch other than possibly some game shows. I, my wife and I have found that if we sort of bring in um, older movies that we watched when we were younger, um, the kids will are quite happy to sit down and watch those. So it's probably more in the, the realm of movies nowadays that you're getting uh, the opportunity to have a, a broader, you know, a general audience going. I mean, I, I've, I tend to take, during the school holidays, take my daughters to the, to the movies to, to watch those the, the movies that they're interested in, and I get a lot out of them myself. I'm you know laughing ridiculously loudly in, in, in ostensibly a kids movie, and they come closest now I think to fulfilling the sort of general audience or family audience remit more than TV. Did you go and see Alvin and the Chipmunks the road trip? No, I, I, I that was one I didn't I, I had no intent in in in, in watching, but we saw uh, the good dinosaur over the school holidays, which bombed I think overall, but. Um, that that worked really well as a, as a kids as as a, as a family movie because it was actually all about family really more than it. it was about family at the end and um, my son was quite very emotional at the end. I sometimes wonder what I, 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 actually I think I know what they're thinking. You watch shows like that and even though it's about dinosaurs, the, the main character his father dies 
And in the back of my mind, I'm wondering what my kids are thinking about with regards to that, because, you know, they, they're looking at that and then they're looking at me and wondering, or they're looking at something else similar where a parent dies uh, and they're looking at, at my wife and I. And I, the, the, the reality of that situation, I don't think has yet hit them uh, mm. like it's it's hit me multiple times, you know, it, anyway. Um, yeah, that's right, especially with your recent medical history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wasn't life support? No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy next year. Any update on him? No, no. I don't. He was just a fleeting thing. I, I, I have no idea. You can surmise where his, his future lies. But I mean, those shows are willing to in, in sort of engage in that sort of uh, sort of topic to an extent. And yes, they mask mm. it with you know animation and dinosaurs and not humans. But you sort of sometimes wonder what the kids are thinking about that, with the reality of, of what that's depicting. My daughter's school has been a couple of instances where one of her friends, her parents mm. died. And just how, A, they react and, and, and just, yeah, it's just, just not, it's not a pleasant thing to go through at an early age. No, I mean, I remember when I joined a new school um, and I think uh, there was one kid, uh, one boy uh, there whose, whose father had, passed away that's right because my my actual father had met him and said he was a good bloke and mm. more like a couple of months into us being there he passed away and whereas now you know the councillors would, would would flock and, and gather and, and and offer you know assistance and, and sucker and all that sort of thing yeah uh back then it was there was nothing really i suppose the teachers were told to just keep an eye on him and see how he went yeah. but counseling for him and counseling for the student body there i mean he died of a heart attack, his father, I think, so it was not, not traumatic as such. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's emblematic of different times, different eras, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. How the, how the hell did we get into this depressing topic, Mark? I don't know. I think also the doctors, the interpretation of the of the main character also helps in mm. terms of that family audience and kids' attachment to them. So if you look at Eccleston wasn't there to make much of an impact, mm. long enough to make an impact. Tennant and Smith definitely were. They were. Kid-friendly, weren't they, really? The interpretation of the, of the Doctor. Um, and I think some of the... some. I think some of the problems, on, I mean, with the, the ratings of the last series is that I don't think kids are taken to Capaldi's Doctor as much. And that sounds terrible because I, I, I adore him. And the stories have been pitched at the performance that Capaldi is meant to bring, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And again, this is this is my point where the show has turned inwards, uh, as it did during the eighties, um, where it's it's abandoned mm. a large portion of its or a decent sized portion of its audience for a particular uh, storytelling type um, at, at, to its detriment. To its detriment. I mean, look, you, you see Capaldi out and about in, in real life, and he loves the kids. And the kids do flock to him, a because he's a because he's a TV personality, I suppose. Interactions at the Doctor Who Festival, brilliant. You know, couldn't fault it. Couldn't fault it. You know, and the kids were flocking to him. But you know, they had that anecdotal evidence that uh, we were told last Saturday night, where you know a friend of ours runs a a, a collectible shop in Melbourne, and he's asking the kids when they were coming in, you know, what do you think about Capaldi? This is when season eight was going or series eight was going, and they said we don't like him. He's too mean. He's too nasty. But now he's asking the same kids, do you like Capaldi? And I go, yeah, he's great. He plays a guitar. He's not as scary. Whether the BBC had a, or Moffat had a rethink after Series 8, mm. or whether this is an evolution that was planned, I, I think mm. it's the former, not the latter. Having said that, even though it appears to be more kid-friendly in, the, in terms of the character, the show has, has lost audience viewers, and it'd be interesting to see 
an analysis of who 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 is no longer watching the demographic yes so it'll be interesting to see then uh, i suppose just to wrap this up then what approach chibnall takes will he seek to broaden the audience i, th- I think he has to doesn't he he will um, make it for a more broader church That's champagne comedy there, Mike. That's champagne comedy. All right, so do we have any thoughts to to sum up on the topic? I think, you know, Doctor Who is one of those series where it can work on multiple levels and can Mm. be pitched at multiple multiple age groups and demographics. I think if you're going to, as parents, show some of your children some of these stories, uh, guidance is recommended, of course. Yes. As Rob alluded to, he'll be going off and showing his kids Case of Androzani while I'll go back (laughs) and maybe show something from season 16 to my kids. Android Tatara, maybe? Actually, that would be a good one because it's got the doubles and all that sort of thing and the robots. Lots of jeopardy in there. Fun times. And that's the thing with Williams is that, uh, you know, I wasn't that impressed with it as a snotty-nosed teenager, Mm. mainly because I've been told by, um, you know, other publications that were very pro-J&T at the time that Williams era was awful. Mm -hmm. And it was a kiddie show. But now I I just watched Williams stuff. Most of it is actually not bad. And it's... It works better for me now, and I think it's about also your age, maybe. Yeah, it has to be your age. And how you appreciate things and, and things like that, and sometimes the memory cheats. You've got mail. Let's bring things a bit more lighthearted, and we'll go into our letters section. So, uh, Mark, I'll, I'll look at uh, this one here. This is from Rob Irwin from the newly launched uh, The Doctor Who Show. Hello, Rob, and hopefully you're garnering good viewing figures. Rob says, or writes, Hey, guys. Read comments from the Christmas episode about the ABC junking shows. I have some first-hand knowledge of this, with a Doctor Who link to boot. Around the time of the 25th anniversary, the afternoon show... Now, for everyone who's not Australian, the afternoon show was a kid's show uh, in the afternoon, hosted by uh, James Valentine. Uh, part game show, uh, sort of a wraparound framework thing for the kids' uh, TV shows that were being shown, uh, including Doctor Who. Uh, the afternoon show played Remembrance of the Daleks, which, I recall, was rushed from the UK. Something unheard of at the time on Oz Television. The it was. S- the segments that ran before each episode comprised a quiz that a number of Sydney-based Doctor Who fans took part in. I was one of those fans, alongside Kate Orman, who later went on to write many New Adventure and Eighth Doctor Adventure novels, and Dallas Jones, who was president of the Australian Doctor Who fan club at the time. He didn't go on the quiz, however, and just came on during the couple of segments to talk to the host, James Valentine. Anyway, while a number of our local club members videotaped the segments at the time, I'm either out of touch with them or they have confirmed they no longer have their old VHS copies. So I had an idea last year sometime to get new copies from the ABC. I got in touch and straight up have to say how helpful the organisation is at helping a member of the public with this kind of thing. The news wasn't good, however, as after a couple of emails back and forth, I received the following. I've checked the other database and unfortunately, it looks like we only have kept a couple of afternoon show eps from 1988 and none from November. So we can't help you, I'm afraid. My apologies for any disappointment. I find that really surprising in some ways, and not surprising in others. Just thought I'd mention it due to a link to a comment in your Christmas episode, and also Doctor Who in general. Keep punching that diamond wall, Rob Irwin. Thanks, Rob. Do you remember watching that segment? I do. Did they do the quiz segment frequently with Doctor Who fans, or was that the only time they did it? It might have been the only time they did it. I remember they did something, they said, we're going to do this Doctor Who pilot, and I thought they were showing the Unearthly Child, you know, the pilot episode. Mm. So I put the videotape in, and what they were doing was, they were, had some old film footage, and they were doing some really bizarre scripting over it, and I just pressed stop. So I'm not surprised they junked it. But if, uh, maybe get on to Phil, Phil Morris in Wigan. He might have a copy. He's got a copy of everything, doesn't he? He's got three, apparently, of everything. (laughs) 
Actually, I'm surprised that that segment isn't on YouTube. That just worries me, though. Like, as we mentioned in that podcast, it's only like 25, 26 years ago. And... It's gone. Gone. They've only kept... Representative samples? Yeah. We're always talking about the BBC archive, but the ABC archive worries me more. And especially some of the commercial stations around here as well. There hasn't really been the sort of scrutiny on the local stations here in Australia as there has been uh, in, in Britain and to an extent in America as well. I mean, you, you can go onto the internet and find articles, dozens of articles about, you know, the, the, the status of particular shows in Britain and America. And, and, you know. But in Australia, there, there's no books, there's no real lengthy articles. It's, I think it's Australian television's dirty secret that they <laughs> were pretty bad at keeping their own, their own history, their own output. Yeah. Which is a cheery thought. One day we might get to the truth, I don't know. Well, people have to go and look for the truth, don't they? I mean, I, I, is there any inclination amongst anyone out there uh, to to go to Channel 9, for instance, and say, uh, Graham Kennedy in Melbourne tonight, for instance, which was, you know, a massively popular uh, family, well, not family, well, if, you know, uh, light entertainment show uh, during the 60s and 70s, I think. Uh, are there any episodes? Is there a particular reason why you've not released them on DVD, for instance? Do you have any? I don't know that there's anyone out there who's who's prepared to systematically approach and re- do the research themselves. I remember there was a there was a famous clip from Graham Kennedy, maybe it was the fifties or the sixties. Was it the monkey or something? I can't remember. It had some animal on it. I remember, you know, like those American clip shows they put together all TV show mistakes, and they say, and here's a clip from uh, in Melbourne tonight, Australia's most top-rated show, mm. and this whole thing's in colour, and it cuts to something from nineteen fifties black and white, and I'm going. Oh my God! They think we're backwards enough. They think we're still broadcasting in black and white, and we're doing this variety show. That yeah, it was completely taken out of context, you know. And it's like, oh my, yeah. Anyway. And uh, just on the social media front, we've had some uh, very positive tweets about our last couple of episodes, haven't we, Mark? The uh, the top five. What the f? Uh, what the fluid links? Apparently, yes. Uh, Something's called that. So yes, thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so that was a lot of fun uh, doing that, and we probably revisit the sort of uh, the idea again later in the year. Yeah, we've had a couple of suggestions for other ones, so we'll definitely work that in to our schedule because uh, ten months till Christmas. So we have had a planning session. We've worked out a couple of things, but we can guarantee we won't be doing any DVD commentaries. We'll be Rob. No, and to uh, to all those weekly podcasters out there, slowly coming to grips with the the horror. That is no series for the next 10 or 11 months. I'm sorry. I'm so, <laughs> so sorry. That's all right. That's all right. So, uh, yes. But how's our patronizing account going? You checked it? Uh, do we have one? No. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't do that to our listeners. Hold out the begging bowl for no good reason, would we, Mark? No, we paid for our own chicken skewers last week, didn't they, we? Oh, they were lovely. They were lovely. They were lovely. They were mm. lovely. And the conversation was... Fantastic. Scintillating and interesting. <laughs> yes. Very illuminating. Very illuminating. Very illuminating. Um, <laughs> yeah, the less about that, the better, I think. Yes, exactly All right. right. So I think we've wrapped it up there, Mark, have we? We have. We've wrapped it up. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Uh, hopefully next episode we'll have a guest on. Ooh. I'm not going to announce who it is in case things don't work out. It'll be good. That's all I can say. Positive thoughts, Mark. Positive thoughts. He hasn't been on before. So that would be like Peter Capaldi hasn't been on before. Would that be who we're interviewing? No. Oh. No. Okay. Did you know George, uh, Peter Capaldi played George Harrison? Did he? Yeah, he did. In a film called John and Loco. John and Loco. <laughs> John and- <laughs> oh, so uh, revealing, Max. So revealing. 
Yeah, John and Yoko, a love story. Where one of the McGann brothers played John Lennon and Capaldi played George Harrison. Yeah. There you go. Was that recent? Oh, it was 85. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He peaked in 85, didn't he, Capaldi, about then? Yeah, he was getting his name around, wasn't he yeah, then? Was, so, yeah. yeah. It's all been downhill since then, apparently. Again, thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening to us. If you want to contact us, all this social media stuff is at the end of the podcast. Apparently, Mark, we should appeal to our audience to jump onto iTunes and leave us five-star reviews because the algorithm will push us higher and higher. If you feel so inclined, please do that. Yes, but you don't have to. There's no pressure, but, you know, we know where you live. So I've been Rob... And I've been Mark, and we will speak again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.